If you have your copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3 verses 1 through 11 is what we will read together. We will focus this morning primarily on verses 1 through 6. We'll be referring to portions through the, the rest of that section, but we'll conclude through verse 11 next Sunday morning as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Well, you've probably heard that this year is a big year with respect to the monarchy in Great Britain, the United Kingdom. It's the Platinum Jubilee. It is the year of Queen Elizabeth's 70th reign, 70, the, the anniversary, the 70-year anniversary, excuse me, of her ascension to the throne. Previously, just a few weeks ago, I referred to Queen Elizabeth and all the hubbub that came up in Louisville, Kentucky when Val and I were living there and the Queen was coming to the Kentucky Derby and all of the... The concern for making sure one presented themselves appropriately if they happen to have an audience with the queen. I'm not infatuated with the English, the British monarchy or Queen Elizabeth, if you will, but come back to her because this is an, this is an important year. 70 years. 70 years. The longest reigning monarch in British history. She became queen on February 6, 1952, upon the death of her father, King George VI. During her reign, she has served, she has been served, rather, by 14 prime ministers, perhaps most notably Winston Churchill, also Margaret Thatcher, and others. She has met 13 of the 14 U.S. presidents who have held office during her reign. The only president that she did not meet was Lyndon Johnson. During her 70 years on the throne, she has sent 300,000 cards to people celebrating their 100th birthday and more than 900,000 messages to couples toasting their diamond, their 60th wedding anniversary. September 9th, 2015, she became the longest reigning monarch in British history, 63 plus years when she passed the reign of her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. And so the British have been celebrating. They've been celebrating the reign of their beloved queen for 70 years. And indeed... That's something worth celebrating. But there's something more worth celebrating, delighting in, rejoicing in. And that's where our text takes us today. As Paul continues writing to this congregation, his letter takes a turn, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Our observations from this passage, and again, primarily verses 1 through 6, are relatively simple. I think what we can take in the direction that Paul is leading the Philippians in, in this portion of his letter, is this to rejoice not in ourselves but in the Lord. Rejoice not in ourselves, but in the Lord. And those are the two points that I want us to consider. To rejoice not in ourselves, or not to rejoice in ourselves, but instead to rejoice in the Lord. Now, as we consider these verses, we'll be jumping around a bit But I think that's the most helpful way for us to see what the Apostle Paul is writing here. As we consider rejoicing not in ourselves, this passage points us to broadly two arenas, if you will, of temptation for us to delight inappropriately, to rejoice in ourselves. And these two arenas are external, outside to us, and internally. So let's first consider these external and internal temptations to rejoice or delight in ourselves. What are the external temptations? Well, from Paul's letter, he writes about one particular outside threat that the Philippians may actually be facing as he writes, or is a threat that he knows could potentially show up. Commentators differ on the fact of whether or not this threat was actually present in Philippi, or if Paul is just looking back on his years of ministry and knowing the reality of this threat and that it could come to the Philippians. 
Well, whether the threat is real or possible for them, it was a real threat. And you're probably asking, well, okay, what is the threat? You said it could be real. It, maybe it's, it's possible that it could be on there, but what is it? What was the threat? We get the sense of what the threat is in verses two and following. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Who are these dogs? Who are these evildoers? Who are these who mutilate the flesh? Well, the common term for this group is Judaizers. And they show up from time to time throughout the Scriptures. And that is those who would proclaim the necessity of adopting, becoming Jew for the Gentiles to truly experience life as a part of the family of God. Now, these Judaizers, those who would say you must effectively become a Jew, didn't always show up in one stripe. The, the most, the harshest, the most forceful, the most zealous, the most adamant, were adamant about the fact that the only way a, a Gentile could be saved, even after the death of Christ, was if they, yes, put their faith in Christ, but also submitted to the requirements of, Judaism, of, of circumcision and other tenets of Judaism. For example, in Acts 15, Acts 15 verse 1, as Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey wraps up, Luke writes the following, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. This is the strictest, most forceful, most adamant form this false teaching took. When Paul wrote his letter to the churches of Galatia about the same time as the Jerusalem council that ensued in Acts 15, from what I just read, Paul was addressing the very same issue. Because there were false teachers who had come to Galatia proclaiming the absolute necessity that the Gentiles essentially become Jewish. That faith in Christ was alone was not sufficient for rescue from sin. And so Paul writes his most forceful, his most aggressive, his firmest letter of all the book to the Galatians, because there was a false gospel that had cropped up from these outside teachers. And so Paul writes to combat this false gospel. As he writes to the Philippians, look out for 
the dogs. When I was growing up, we had a dog, Barney the Schnoodle. We got Barney, he was a stray when I was in first grade. He passed away my second year of graduate studies. So we had Barney a long time. He was a great dog. He'd sit up, toss popcorn, he'd eat popcorn. When my dad would make silver dollar pancakes, Barney would always get the first pancake, the test pancake. Paul's not talking about Barney the Schnoodle. Because in the first century, dogs weren't regarded the way we regard them now. They, they weren't commonly household pets. They roamed around in packs. They were ravenous. They were vicious. They were dirty. And so Jews often referred to Gentiles, non-Jews, the unclean, as dogs. So here Paul is turning that language on these Judaizers. And he's saying that they are the dogs. They are the ones who are ravenous because of their commitment to this physical necessity of circumcision, this attack, if you will, on the flesh, this mutilation as a claim of necessity to be a part of the family of God. Paul wants nothing to do with it, and he wants the Philippians not to be drawn in to such a practice, to such a claim, to such a false gospel. What does this have to do with the temptation to rejoice in ourselves? It has this to do. Because the claim was, in order to be saved by God, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And X being, for the males, submitting to the Jewish practice of circumcision. God's gift to Abraham and his descendants that had its rightful place. What does that invite? Look what I've done. Look what I have accomplished in order to make myself acceptable to God. And Paul says that has no place in the life of a Christian. That is not consistent with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants his hearers to oppose this temptation that could or was coming to them to rejoice, to embrace a practice, and rejoice in what they have done to make themselves acceptable to God. This threat is not present among us to adopt Jewish practices. From time to time, it will creep up in an individual here or there. But by and large, this is not a threat to the 21st century church. But that doesn't mean that we are not also prone to 
external temptations to rejoice in ourselves and what we have done. This is the M.O. of all the false religions. Do this, do these things, and God will be pleased. God might bless you. God might accept you in the afterlife if you fast enough, if you pray enough, if you give enough, if you do all of these things, maybe God will accept you. And what is the temptation there? Look at what I have done to make myself acceptable to God. But it's not just in... Religions like Islam and others. But distortions of biblical Christianity also contain elements in this direction. You want God to be pleased with you? Receive communion. Do these practices, and then the grace of God will be on you. Do these things, and God will be pleased with you. What does this invite? Look at what I have done. Look at my long list of accomplishments. This is antithetical to the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not to rejoice in what we have accomplished. We cannot do enough to make ourselves acceptable to God. But there's another way in which this threat comes to us in the 21st century. This threat to rejoice in ourselves. And that is in the cultural air in which we live and move and breathe that is filled with moral confusion. That is confused about what it is to be a man and a woman. In a world that is confused about the true definition of marriage. In a world that is confused about the right and glorious place to celebrate human sexuality. In this world, there is really, by and large, no concern for making oneself acceptable to God. But there is a concern for positioning oneself, positioning one's company, making oneself out to be worthy of celebration, worthy of acceptance. 
There's no concern here for being accepted by God, but a rejoicing in the individual community or society because of a tolerance, an allowance of this alternative morality. But not just a tolerance, but a celebration of this moral confusion. And we see it all around us right now. But not just a celebration, but a condemnation of any alternative view. A condemnation of upholding biblical morality, a biblical sexual ethic. Where is the temptation to self-exaltation here? It is this. It is the temptation to see we are the enlightened ones. We have, as a society, we are coming to our senses and embracing new and better things. Look at the progress that we have made or that we are making. This is a celebration of the self and what we have accomplished. The real temptation for us, the real temptation for us here is to consider getting with the program, otherwise our message will not be heard. And if we can get with the program, then our message might be more palatable to the upheaving society around us. Friends, the message that we have is unchanging. And it is not rooted in us. It is not rooted in our wisdom. It is not rooted in what we have attained. It is rooted in God and in God alone. It is rooted in Christ and in Christ alone. But there is not only these external temptations to rejoicing, to celebrating, look at what we have done, look at what we have accomplished. But there are internal temptations. Notice Paul refers to these for himself, not by way of temptation, but they are reminders. In verses 4 and following, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, reason for boasting in myself. What are these reasons? Anyone thinks he has some? I have more, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisees, zeal persecutor of the church, righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I will stack up my religious resume to anyone and theirs will be found lacking. Paul took no confidence in these things as he goes on to say, and as we will see more next week. But here there is a reminder for us that there is a real internal temptation for us to rejoice in ourselves on the basis of aspects of our religious resume. Rejoicing perhaps in our religious pedigree. 
Baptist born, Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be a Baptist dead. Rejoicing in our theological acumen, our biblical insight, the depth of our knowledge of doctrine. Rejoicing in ourselves and our moral superiority that we are not going the way, as one person has said, of the moral insanity all around us. Friends, all of these things in and of themselves are not bad. It is a treasure if you grew up in a Christian family. And parents, we should be passing on the faith to our children. Depth of biblical insight is good and helpful. And we should be growing in our knowledge of the Lord and of His Word. We should be striving after holiness and cultivating a biblical morality. But these are not occasions for rejoicing in ourselves. They are false bases that will always be found lacking. Relying on the wrong source can lead to wrong rejoicing. There's an iconic photo in American history. Harry Truman on the back of a rail car holding up that early print edition of the Chicago Tribune. You remember the photo? Celebrates that Dewey defeats Truman. Except that's not what happened, is it? This is what Tim Jones, writer with the Tribune, writes about that photo and that event. As a presidential candidate, Governor Thomas Dewey of New York was not a glad-hander, not a flesh-presser. He was stiff and tended towards pomposity. The only man who could strut sitting down was the crack that made the rounds. But on November 2nd, 1948, Election Day, an overwhelming sense of inevitability hung around the Republican nominee. The polls and the pundits left no room for doubt. Dewey was going to defeat President Harry S. Truman, and the Tribune would be the first to report it. Arguably, the most famous headline in the newspaper's 150-year history, Dewey Defeats Truman, is every publisher's nightmare on every election night. Like most newspapers, the Tribune, which had dismissed him on its editorial page, was lulled into a false sense of security by polls that repeatedly predicted a Dewey victory. Critically important, though, was a printer's strike which forced the paper to go to press hours before it normally would. As the first edition deadline approached, managing editor J. Loy Pat Maloney had to make the headline call, although many East Coast tallies were not yet in. Maloney banked on the track record of Arthur Sears Henning, the paper's longtime Washington correspondent. Henning said Dewey. Henning was rarely wrong. Besides, Life magazine had just carried a big photo of Dewey with the caption, the next president of the United States. 
Ink was hardly dry on 150,000 copies of the paper when radio bulletins reported the race was surprisingly close. Truman went on to take Illinois and much of the Midwest in this whopping election surprise. Radio comedian Fred Allen noted Truman was the first president to lose in a gallop, that is a gallop poll, and win in a walk. The Tribune blamed the pollsters for its mistake. The headline might well have been quickly forgotten, but for a chance encounter two days later in St. Louis. Truman, traveling by rail to Washington, stepped to the rear platform of the train and was handed a copy of the Tribune early edition. He had as low an opinion of the Tribune as it did of him. Truman held the paper up and photographers preserved the moment for history. Circumstances didn't help the Tribune, but also their desire to see Truman defeated and to celebrate his defeat and Dewey's victory led to this errant publication. They put their confidence in the wrong place. And wrong placed confidence leads to wrong rejoicing. In the case of Truman, it gave us a memorable photo and a story to remember. Friends, rejoicing in the wrong place, rejoicing in ourselves, doesn't lead to merely a passing story. It is an eternally fatal issue. We dare not put the place, make the basis of our confidence, of our joy, of our delight in ourselves. Instead, we are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord Jesus Christ. There are two details here that we need to quickly observe. The finally, as you read this, read along in many of our English translations, you get to this finally, it kind of feels like a pastoral finally, doesn't it? You're just halfway through the letter. Here, this finally isn't really as I come to the conclusion of my letter, but I'm coming to the last group of things that I want to talk about, and it's going to take him a while to talk about them. But it's all governed by this idea of ultimately rejoicing in the Lord. But when we think about that phrase, rejoice in the Lord, there's a question here. Rejoice in the Lord. Does that mean where I am to rejoice, where I'm at, my situation, and where it is I am to rejoice, or does it mean I'm to, we are to rejoice in the Lord Himself? Is rejoicing in the Lord talking about the place of rejoicing or the, the thing, the person in whom we are to rejoice. It's both. 
It's both. As we read through the following sentences, it is both. Where we are to rejoice, we can only rejoice in the Lord as the object of our worship if we are in the Lord, united to Him by faith. So rejoicing in the Lord is both where we are to do our rejoicing joined by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, but rejoicing in the Lord is also what we are to do. We are to rejoice, delight, celebrate in the Lord Himself. Notice this quickly. First, Rejoicing in the Lord, this is where we are to rejoice. Notice down in verse 9. Paul's desire, Paul's longing is to be found in Him. This celebration of being united with the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, notice how Paul describes the believers He takes the language of the Judaizers and turns it on them. Because what does he write in verse 3? For we are the circumcision, not those who have experienced a physical act, but those who have experienced spiritual circumcision by the hand of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, when God takes out that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, the heart that is sensitive to God, the language of this in in the Gospel of John is the new birth. When we are born again, our position changes. We who once were far off are brought near. Ephesians 2. Colossians 1, we were in the domain of darkness, but by the gracious work of God, we are brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. All of this happens at the moment of conversion, when by God's grace, we see our need for a Savior. Our hearts are changed. And by faith, we enter into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a matter of the heart. But this change of location also results in being empowered by the Spirit. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. So, we were outside, we were under the reign of sin, God by His grace works a change in our heart, and by faith we are brought into the kingdom of Christ, so that now by faith we are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. His death is our death, His resurrection is our resurrection, Romans 6. And so it is in that new realm, in that new place of citizenship, where we rejoice in the Lord. But rejoicing, worship, celebrating requires something to celebrate. 
And what are we are to rejoice in? What are we are what are we to celebrate? We are to celebrate the Lord Himself. We are to rejoice in the Lord. We do so by faith and we rejoice not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not in our religious resume, not in anything else that we may lay claim to as supposedly making ourselves acceptable to God. We rejoice not in these things, but we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the one who has given himself so that we might be made right with God. We rejoice in the one who has conquered sin and death by his death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. We rejoice in the Lord who reigns as King over all things. Philippians 2. By faith, we rejoice and we rejoice in the Lord. Galatians 6.13-14 Notice, before I read that, notice what Paul says. Where do we glory? In what do we glory? Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus with no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ. I mentioned earlier that letter to the Galatians that Paul writes where he is opposing the false gospel of the Judaizers. Galatians 6, 13 and 14. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. They want to celebrate what has happened in you. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics are knotted up in the NBA Finals. Two games apiece. The next team to win two games takes home the championship. And you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a parade, either in San Francisco or in Boston. There's going to be a parade celebrating the champions. Friends, we have someone much greater. Much greater than the best defensive team in the NBA this year. Much greater than one of the best shooters of all time. We have someone incomparably greater to rejoice in. And that's where we are to rejoice. That is the one in whom our celebration is to begin and to end. The glorious Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So that if you're here today and you don't know Christ by faith, your rejoicing in the Lord can only come by going to the Lord. By turning away from any claim that you would make to your own self-righteousness. To your own ability to be accepted by God on the basis of what you have done. 
relinquish your efforts to rejoice in yourself and rejoice that there is a Savior from sin and submit yourself to Him by faith. I would love to talk with you more about that even after the service or this week. For those of us who are walking by faith, united to Christ by trusting in Him, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord and not in ourselves? We need to ask, where is it that we are tempted to self-exaltation? Where, where is it that you and I are tempted perhaps to not merely a right sense of gratitude, but friend, are you in danger? Are you relying on your religious background? If you are, then the appeal that I just made is the appeal to you. Relinquish your religious background and flee to Christ by faith. Do you have an inordinate, an inflated delight in your biblical knowledge, in your knowledge of doctrine and theology? These things are not bad to know. We should, again, grow in the knowledge of the Lord. But these are not objects of rejoicing. We are not saved by our affirmation of justification by faith alone. We are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Are you tempted to rejoice in your apparent moral superiority? This is a temptation. Friends, our rejoicing should not be in anything that we have done, nor in anything that we might do individually or together. Our rejoicing, the object of our rejoicing, is to be the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. We should strive to please the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.9 So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. But we must vigilantly guard against the thinking, wow, the Lord must be pleased with me. Why? Because we're empowered by God. We are who we are only by God's grace. And moreover, we cannot simultaneously rejoice in ourselves and in the Lord. One or the other. And the call, the call is 
that our rejoicing would be in the Lord. Let us rejoice first and always in the Lord and what He has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You that we don't have to fish around. We don't have to try and figure out where our joy is to be centered. Where life-altering joy is to be found. Father, thank You that by Your grace, You have communicated to us in Your Word that it is in the Lord where our hope is to be placed. It is in the Lord where the delight of our hearts is to be situated. It is in the Lord and in what He has done that we are to find and to continue to enjoy rest now and forevermore. So Father, I pray that You would open our eyes. Show us, Father, where it is that we are given to temptations from without and temptations from within to find some measure of rejoicing in who we are. Instead, Father, help us to delight, to celebrate in Your great kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. Help us to celebrate, Father, signs of Your sustaining grace in our lives and in one another's lives. But Father, may the location of our rejoicing, even when we see where it is that You are at work in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters, may the center, may the focus of our joy be in Your greatness, in Your grace, and in Your kindness to us. Father, may we truly, in spirit and in truth, rejoice in the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.